Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's guest producer Josh over there again. And this is Stuff You Should Know, the Led Zeppelin edition. The what edition? The Led Zeppelin edition. (laughs) Is that what you thought of? Yeah, anytime I see like that, um, I guess it was, it's not the Zoso album cover, but I think it was like a poster that you'd see in Spencer's that was like, I think from Led Zeppelin 4. It was like a guy with a long beard. He looked like... um, Oh, sure. He looked like, uh, what was his name? The guy from uh, Lord of the Rings. Gandalf? Yeah, yeah. He looks like Gandalf, basically. (laughs) Yeah, Zeppelin was very, you know, anyone who's ever seen Song Remains the Same, they... They had all sort of like mystical Druid-esque leanings. Right. They were they were well known for their Druid-esque leanings. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's what I think of with Druids. And it turns out that that is, in, in one sense, very much accurate. That is what a Druid looks like. But if you're talking strictly about Druids that came from the 17th century onward— like just a few hundred years ago, Mm -hmm. you would be correct. If you're talking about the ancient Druids, the Druids Druids, the ones that everybody thinks of as like like the OG Druids. I almost said that. They, we have no idea what they were like, really. Or we have very, very little idea what they were like. And it's based on such um, potentially slanted evidence that some archaeologists refuse to agree with certainty that druids ever even existed the way that we think they did. Yeah, and it's funny, This uh, the Grabster helped us out with this one with the research, and he, I don't know if Ed's been listening to us for too long mm-hmm. or what, because he fell into the Josh and Chuck trap of not even saying what a druid was until yeah. like page four. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so we should just go ahead and say, when we're talking about the ancient druids, mm-hmm. uh it wasn't like a race of people or anything like that. They were uh, Celts, and as defined by some history website I went to, um, <laughs> they were members of the learned class of ancient Celts in uh, ancient Britain and France, and they acted as um, – it was really more like job-based. They were teachers and judges and mm-hmm. priests and philosophers. Mm-hmm. So that's – I mean, I never knew that it was really just sort of a um, – Jeez, uh, I don't even know how to define it. Not a class of people. Well, sort of a class. Yeah, for sure. But it was kind of uh, job-based. I never an, knew that. An occupation. Yeah, occupational. Yeah. That's the they, had, they had a union. They had pretty decent health insurance. Sure. Which is ironic because they didn't know what they were doing with medicine at the time. Yeah, or if you, you know, if you had really good insurance, you could wind up in the wicker man. <laughs> yeah, getting burned can. alive. <laughs> right. Your family would, would benefit from that. You wouldn't potentially. Right. But that's, I mean, what you just said is basically the the most you can say about druids with any level of of accuracy. So are we but, done? Yep, that was it. Short, that's druids, everybody. <laughs> short stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, everything beyond that is 
is different varying degrees of conjecture. And I don't want to like beat this horse over and over again. So I think it's really <laughs> just good to kind of like just put it out at the beginning. Like sure. everything we're talking about from this point on is relatively unproven. Um, Archaeology is being very stubborn, and to their credit, about what they will agree uh, about Druids and what they won't agree about Druids. Um, And and I think that's great. But everybody else is like, hey, that's good. You guys sit there and doggedly and methodically figure it out. We're going to just let our imaginations run wild and, and come up with this conception of Druids. Yeah, and, you know, one of the big reasons uh, why we don't have a lot of firsthand accounting is because the Druids did not, uh, and they had a very good reason, but they didn't write things down. They didn't keep a historical record about themselves. Right. And the reason makes a lot of sense. It was There was a lot of power in the fact that they remained sort of mystical and that a conquering uh, enemy or foe can't just get a bunch of Druidic, is that a word? Yes. Druidic writings to figure out what they're all about. So there was a lot of mystery and mystique, and because of that, a lot of power in just passing along traditions uh, orally within their own group. Right. Uh, It really ended up kind of being, giving them a stranglehold on their mystique. Right, yeah, for sure. Um, The the thing is, though, that's a, a super important point. They didn't write things down, but almost as important is to, to say that they weren't illiterate. No. Like, the Celts wrote stuff down. And surprisingly, when they wrote stuff down, they wrote it in Greek. So the later Romans who came along, as we'll see, and had a huge influence on Celtic culture, when they encountered the Celts, the these heathens, these savage tribes, they, um, or what the Romans considered them uh, to be, they, they found that they already wrote in Greek. But the Celts themselves, Chuck, and I, I didn't know this, um, they were... They were basically a multi-ethnic group. They were not just like, you know, um, Germanic or they weren't just like uh, Aryan or, um, you know, North African. Like they, they weren't like an ethnic group. They were apparently connected by language, but they were very tribal and they warred with each other pretty much constantly. So each little each little tribe would have its own kingdom, but they all were united under this culture, this Celtic culture and Celtic language. Yeah, and um, even though the Druids didn't write about themselves, um, early Greeks did, um, specifically uh, Posidonius. And here's where, like you said earlier, it's like someone writes about the Druids, maybe based on... Uh, lore or legend, um, sometimes maybe firsthand accounts, but then other people write about those accounts, and then people write about the accounts of the accounts. And pretty soon, all of the sort of quote-unquote knowledge we have about the Druids is based on, it's like a game of telephone, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And one of the biggest contributors to, um, I guess, Druidic writing was Julius Caesar. He wrote a lot about the Druids. Right. But from the perspective of a conquering uh, army, you know, so that's a it's definitely going to have a slant. And he also based a lot of his writings on Posidonius to begin with. Right. Yeah. Posidonius's writings were lost, like all of them were lost. We know he wrote a lot about the Druids because, like you said, all those people came later and referenced his writings before his writings have been lost. But we've never seen his writings, uh, which is a shame because we probably could have learned a lot about the, the Celts and the Druids firsthand. Um, 
But by the time, so Posidonius was was working in the first century BCE. Um, by the time Julius Caesar comes along, I think about 50, 60 years later, um, he he has a different slant than Posidonius probably would have. Like, because like you said, he was showing up and saying, here are all these people who we are subjugating. Right. And then here's the reason why we're subjugating them. He wasn't writing about the Celts and he wasn't writing about the Druids to document their culture. He was writing propaganda mm-hmm. to support the campaign of Roman imperialism back home so that everybody saw, oh, it is good that we're going and conquering these people and bringing civilization to these heathen tribes because they're just running around cutting each other's heads off and um, sacrificing one another to their oak trees and possibly even eating one another. Um, and, And now... It's up to historians and archaeologists to say, okay, how much of that is accurate? How much of that comes from a kernel of truth? And how much of it is outright just, you know, fraudulent propaganda, which is a huge job to undertake. Yeah, and we'll, we'll touch more on the human sacrifice stuff because uh, that's certainly juicy. Yeah. But um, so I, I guess Caesar writes a lot about this. And it's like you said, from that perspective, when things really get wacky is when our old buddy – Pliny the Elder starts writing. Mm-hmm. And this is about, what, about 100 years later. And this is when things, this is when the writing really amped them up as like very odd, wizard like people. Yeah. And Pliner, Pliny, so he was a Roman citizen. He was a, a great traveler, though, and a great, um, a, a great, uh, I guess great wingman. He was a great, great wingman. <laughs> he would just support you, eat whether you struck out or not. Um, <laughs> struck out. He. Uh, Are we on he, three's company? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. If you went to the Regal Beagle with Pliny, you're yeah. going to come away happy one way or another. Yes. Um, so he, but he was still like he was a documenter of other other cultures. That's what he was going to do. But the problem is, is he was still a Roman citizen, so he saw things through Roman eyes. So that means that he saw heathens as heathens. Like, yeah, their culture was interesting and it was worth writing down, but. It doesn't mean that it, he had uh, respect for it or got everything right or understood everything correctly. But you, you, the point is you could take Pliny's writings potentially with a little more of a grain of sand than Caesar's. Sure. Salt. But, but <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whatever you want to chew on. Yeah. But, the, but Caesar's writings have uh, an advantage over Pliny's in that his were more contemporaneous to Celtic culture. By the time Pliny came along, the, the Romans had already spread their culture throughout the Celtic lands. That is to say they stamped out every other culture. Basically. And what I found interesting from research, Chuck, is that there were varying degrees of grudgingness at accepting that culture among the Celtic tribes. In some respects, they were like, oh, yes, I love civilization. It's way better than the life we were living before. There's so many great trappings to it, and it's so much less, like, you know, um, hard and difficult and (laughs) muddy. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, I also don't like how the Romans, like, just kind of, like, rape everybody they feel like raping and tax us even though we're considered basically slaves to them. Right. So there was a real, like, um, weird uh, period where the Romans started to to permeate with with their culture, the Celtic culture of, um, I guess, ambivalence toward that that permeation. Yeah. um, 
So, I mean, these are the, the historical writings that we have. Uh, as far as actual real archaeological evidence, it's not much better as far as conjecture goes. Uh, a couple of examples, because there's always, you know, this longing to connect the Druids and their paganism, their brand of paganism to this ritual sacrifice. Right. Again, because it's juicy. So the Lin- the very famous Lindau man uh, who was Lindau II, uh, Lindau I was a woman. Mm-hmm. But this was a body that they found in 1984 uh, preserved in peat, in a peat bog. Uh, he was a, a dude in his mid-20s and had a very uh, violent death, as it appears. Um, very. They, they found food in his belly. So they there's so much conjecture. The conjecture there is essentially that he was ritually sacrificed. That was his last meal. And then he had what's known as three deaths. He was strangled. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are ligature marks on his neck. Very well preserved. You should look him up. The the garret, the leather strap is still around his neck. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, he was hit on the head after that, like blunt force trauma style. Mm-hmm. And then his throat was cut. So the speculation is they gave him a last meal and then gave him possibly three deaths to satisfy three different pagan gods. Oh. But— it also he was found naked, so there's speculation that he could have just been robbed of his clothes and robbed of his money, and uh, maybe by someone who it was a sicko. Maybe or somebody who is like, get that thing out of my face and put some clothes on. I'm telling you for the last time, right? And then it went it went south from there. Yeah, and you can go see. He travels a little bit, but he's on permanent display in the British Museum. Mm-hmm. If you want to go. Uh, Say hi. Yeah, if you ever want to be reminded that you're really not a lot more than a bag of skin, go check out pictures of a Lindau man because that's basically what he is. Yeah, they've also found mass graves um, from the Iron Age in in these areas where uh, where the Druids were around. And again, conjecture that this was an example of like mass ritual sacrifice, but that's largely been pretty much poo-pooed over the years as well. Yeah, it's definitely up for debate whether they were just executed or whether they were um, killed in battle or whether, yeah, they were sacrificed. Um, there's some other there's some other archaeology that has has really tantalized archaeologists. There's one called the Deal Warrior. Yeah, that's a great name. Yeah, it really is, especially if you check out, like, how he was found. He was found with a shield, a spear, and a sword, and wearing a crown. And as far as they can tell, there's no other Celtic um, burial that that has been found thus far that had all of these accoutrements. So this is an extraordinarily important person, but they have no idea who it was. But they want to say Druid so bad, they, they can taste it. And then one of the other burials that was found... They found him in a, a graveyard uh, somewhere in, I believe, Britain. Um, <laughs> and he was found with a lot of weird stuff, like uh, uh, what appears to be a board game, but that they think <laughs> oh, possibly wow. was was used for divining, you know, the future. Sure. Like rolling dice or something like that. Um, he was found with divining rods, you know, mm-hmm. like they used to find water and that kind of thing. So that indicates some sort of ritual magic. He was also found with a set of surgical tools. So they're calling this guy the doctor because the archaeologists are being level-headed. 
everybody else is saying this is the grave of a druid. It's the grave of a druid. Just say it, you stupid archaeologist. <laughs> right. And he's like, no, I won't say it. He won't say it. But it's uh, it it could prove to be a really um important find. It probably it probably already has proven itself that we just aren't openly interpreting it yet. Yeah, and um, I should mention if Deal Warrior is not the name of a death metal band mm-hmm. then someone's doing it wrong yeah all you need is a picture of this guy on your album cover yeah, that's and that's your first one uh should we take a break yeah let's all right let's take a little break and we'll come back and talk uh we'll c- post some more conjecture right after this <laughs> Chuck, we're back. It's time for more conjecture. Again, some archaeologists refuse to uh, to say that druids definitely existed, that a priestly class of druids in Celtic culture existed. Just chew on that one for a while. All it right. Totally undermines your Led Zeppelin poster. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, too, about the Celts is we don't know a lot about where they're culture began or when it began exactly mm-hmm. uh, because druids are Celts. We obviously don't know much about where they began either. Right. Um, we do know that how, how it kind of all ended. Um, and when we say ended, I mean, there, I mean, you can go to modern Druid, Druidism websites today and, and go wear a, a flowery uh, dress and frolic barefoot in a field sure. with people in any given country, probably. Mm -hmm. But that's not exactly the same thing. The actual Druids, uh, we know because of writing from the first and second centuries, basically uh, there are laws all over the place that ban Druidism. Part of this Roman uh, conquering way, which is like, hi, we're here, so forget everything. Forget your way of life. You are now Roman. Uh, Enjoy using toilets. Right, exactly. And they're like, I do like the toilets a lot. Right. So so with Claudius, like a couple of um, Caesars, Augustus and Tiberius, said, okay, Roman citizens aren't allowed to participate in Druidism. And then by the time Claudius came around, uh, and by the time his rule ended in 54 CE, um, the the Druids have had been at least officially stamped out. Like, not only could you as a Roman citizen not participate in Druidism, Druidism in in totality was banned in the Roman Empire um, under punishment of death. And uh, it, it had uh, the effect of driving Druidism underground for sure. Yeah. but It's not like it just went away. They still, like, you know, they would go off and, and, and do their own thing quietly as much as possible. Right. And and so, and I mean, when Claudius is banning this, it's not just like, no, we, we don't like this. It's a threat to, to the Roman control over the Gallic lands and these Celts. Um, that's not the reason that he gave, although that was almost certainly the reason why they outlawed Druids. But the reason they gave were things like these people practice an inhuman 
religion where they sacrifice people to their gods. Apparently, they would go through criminals and prisoners, and then once they ran out of criminals and prisoners, they would start sacrificing their own innocent people. They just had this bloodlust, so that religion had to be stamped out and repressed. And of course, the Roman citizenry around the world said, oh yeah, that's great, get rid of Druidism. But like you said, it, it, it just kind of went underground, it seems like. And then as rebellions started to kind of crop up around the um, the British Isles and in France um, against Roman rule, it's pretty much a sure bet that if there were such a thing as Druids, they were helping to foment that that rebellion and that uprising. Yeah, and I think I get the idea that the Romans were a little spooked by the Druids um, while they were like vastly superior with their military and their might. Mm-hmm. Um, they paid a lot of attention to them. And, like, they're not going to make a bunch of hay about something that they don't think is a threat. And I think they were spooked out a little bit. Like, uh, when they were resisting, you know, after these laws were passed, the Druids invoked a prophecy saying the end of the world is coming near and the Roman Empire is going to be destroyed by fire. And I don't think it was just like the Romans just brushed that off. I think they were like, oh, geez, those those guys are crazy. Um, And also, how are we going to deal with the big fire? (laughs) Right, exactly. So that, so that, I mean, I could see being spooked by that, couldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, so um, they, they definitely, if they weren't spooked, Chuck, at least they took them quite seriously and, like, again, like outright banned them. But not only did they, did they um, prophesy that they were going to um, be burned by fire, like the, the, some of these early writings of Druids, especially Pliny, made it seem kind of, like creepy and magical and wizardy, yeah. you know? Like like Pliny described druids as holding um, blood offerings, like like slaughters of animals and humans in their sacred oak groves. And we should say, I don't think we said this, but the word druid, one of the uh, suggestions for the etymology of it is drew and wid. Drew means to know and wid means oak. So druid may mean knower of the oaks or the people who who have the knowledge of these sacred oak trees. Um, and Pliny described these guys in like white beards and long white robes climbing up oak trees to cut down mistletoe with golden sickles, Yeah, you know, around Sawain or, um, you know, the spring solstice or summer solstice or spring equinox um, and, and worshiping this whole pantheon of gods that unfortunately the Romans didn't bother to write down the names of. Yeah, and wasn't uh, isn't there speculation that Merlin from the Arthurian legend was a druid? Mm-hmm, like he survived, you know, the the not just the Roman Romanization of Celtic culture and also the Christianization of Celtic culture, but into the Middle Ages um, when he was supposedly running around. Yeah, and again, because they weren't writing anything down, you know, when you when you're a conquering person, you can go in and like raid the archives and get a lot of knowledge. I imagine it was kind of creepy in and of itself to just find that they had no writings at all. Right. And then you're all of a sudden, I mean, I'm sure there was like questioning and stuff, but then you're just going on whatever they wanted to tell you. And any Druid worth his salt was probably like, you know, probably teased them a bit about right. how creepy they might be. <laughs> sure. You know? So that whole not writing things down thing, that's that's an important point. So one thing, it means that we don't have any direct understanding of the Druids from the Druids. But um, the reason why they didn't write things down was twofold. One, 
if they were this priestly elite class that stood between the average Celt and the gods, um, they were the ones who knew the secrets of the oak and the wisdom of the oak and all of that. Um, one way they maintained that monopoly or that, that have the market cornered on that knowledge was to make it so that the only way you could learn to be a Druid was from another Druid and to pass along this ancient tradition of knowledge, which makes the whole thing way more mystical than even if there oh, yeah. was some main religious book or something like that. It's oral ancient knowledge passed on from Druid to Druid. That's how they passed it on, and that's why they didn't write anything down. And then elsewhere I saw, I think it was maybe Strabo or someone else said that the reason they didn't write things down was because they felt like by reading you didn't learn as much as from being immersed in it and and having it explained to you over Hmm. the period of something like 20 years by another druid because that's about how long it took to be initiated into being a full druid. A full rank druid? A full rank, a black belt druid. Uh, Shall we take another break? Why not, man? All right, let's do it, and then we'll talk a little bit more about whether or not they practice human sacrifice and Stonehenge and all sorts of other good things right after this. All right, so we talked... uh, a lot so far about, or a little bit rather, about uh, whether or not they did practice human sacrifice. This is sort of the $64,000 question. And like we said, because the Romans really wanted to propagandize and paint a picture of, listen, we got to do this. These people are barbarians. Uh, they're sacrificing, and like you said, maybe even eating each other. Mm. That, that cooks up a good case, basically, especially <laughs> when it's coming from Caesar's pen. Um, or whatever he wrote with. What did Caesar write with? He wrote with the blood of his enemies. Okay. <laughs> which, by the way, by the way, Chuck, we are one day out from the Ides of March. That's right. Which marked the death of Caesar one day before your birthday. So happy early birthday from everybody in Stuff You Should Know Land, hey, Chuck. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, so did they or did they not? That is the big question. And the answer is maybe <laughs> right. So, you know, there's a lot of writings about it, but again, you got to take all that with a grain of salt as propaganda. But, you know, some of it was super detailed, um, could just be good writing and good imagination, but there was enough of it um, to where there is a lot of speculation that, it, you know, they may have done so. Maybe not on some huge mass scale, but that doesn't mean that if you people weren't thrown in a wicker man every now and then and set ablaze. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's worth really just saying overtly. One of the things, that whole wicker man, if you haven't seen Wicker Man, go watch it. Not the Nick Cage version. See both. Okay, go see both. There are moments um, in the Nick Cage one that are so bad, it's pretty wonderful to watch. Right, okay, all right, all right, granted. The original one's pretty awesome. I think, oh, yeah. like, Peter, Peter Cushing in it? Oh, well, Christopher Lee was the the main creep, wasn't he? Well, obviously, I like was the, the main, main creep. creep in his own life. <laughs> um, he was great. But so in Wicker Man, I think it was from 1975, the, this uh, investigator, I think, goes into like this kind of um, isolated, insular kind of Celtic tradition community and ends up finding himself inside a giant Wicker Man being burned alive. Yeah. They, that's based on 
legend about the the druids that they used to sacrifice people by making giant wicker figures, putting somebody in there and setting it on fire. And that was just one of the ways they supposedly sacrificed people. Another one I read about was that they would slash people in the back with a mortal wound, and then one of the druids or one of their assistants would watch the person's death throes and death agony to divine the future. Like you could tell by the way somebody writhed or wriggled or maybe oh, how they bled, what the future would be. And then with Lindau Man, you were saying, remember, he was he was he had his neck broken, he was choked, hit over the head, and he was slashed in the throat? Yeah. They think that possibly the choking thing, the strangulation, and the slash in the throat were related to where he would produce like a fountain of blood Mm. When when he was uh, when his throat was slashed while he was being strangled, that would tell them something. Possibly, <laughs> that's that's the legend. The whole cannibalism thing, I saw zero evidence for at all. Yeah, there is no evidence for cannibalism. Human sacrifice. There are a lot of good cases out there that that really possibly did happen among the Celts. Yeah, and part of the reason this is so. Uh so tantalizing all these years later is is when they link them to things like Stonehenge and you go to Stonehenge and you're told some story by some snot-nosed kid, you know, that's visiting from Indiana <laughs> that like, you know, the Druids used to, you know, sacrifice people here and that's why they built it, uh, which is not true at all. It's gotten all mixed up. Um, Stonehenge was around long before the, the Celts and the Druids were doing their thing there, but they may have gone there. I mean, Ed makes a good point. Like, a lot of times when there were religious temples and things that had been evacuated, another pagan religion might move in just because it's there and it's ready to go. So they may have gone to Stonehenge and performed some ceremonies, but that was not the purpose for Stonehenge. Yeah, we have no idea why they built Stonehenge or even who built Stonehenge, but the first the first unambiguous appearance of the Celts comes hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of years after Stonehenge was first built. Yeah. But yeah, they may have used it. If you were a druid, wouldn't you like say, yeah, Stonehenge is probably pretty important. It lines up, I think, with the summer solstice, the sun, the rising sun and the summer solstice. That was a very important um, time to the Druids, as far as we understand. So, of course, they would pay attention to it and use it. And maybe another way to look at it is that the Druid tradition and maybe even the Celts themselves directly grew out of the people in the culture that right. built Stonehenge originally. Because I think it, I think it was Caesar who wrote that the um, Celtic culture and Druids grew out of the British Isles first and then spread westward or eastward into Europe. Right. Primarily France, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, although there, there's, I've seen references that it made it as far as Turkey, the Celtic oh, wow. culture did, um, and had extensive trading routes. So they weren't like this, this, you know, isolated group of bumpkins. They were spread out all over the place. They knew how to trade. They, they had their own civilization. It just wasn't nearly as advanced as as Roman civilization. But they had like an, an established culture by the time Rome showed up. We just don't know quite that much about it as it was right before Rome came. Yeah, and as you said, I think at like the very beginning, like, you know, years and years later, like in the 1700s and 1600s, there were people and groups of people that referred to themselves as Druids and claimed that they were practicing these true traditions. Um but there's really no like, there's really no proof 
that any of that is true at all. And it, and it's likely that it was just these people many, many years later that just sort of um, kind of dug up this ancient thing and made it their own. No, it's it's 100% that way. And even like the, the neo-Druidic groups that you see today uh, don't try to, to make it any, make it out any other way. Um, a lot of the, a lot of them will say, you know, we, we are, this, the Druidism we practice has been around a few hundred years and it's based on ancient, you know, folklore and tradition right. that you will find in Ireland. And that's, that's a really good point too. Like, like Neo-Druidism traces its roots back to the 17th century when some historians and antiquarians got interested in some of the ancient Irish stuff. Um, and they, they think possibly that some of the ancient Irish myths and legends are a form, a kind of a, a preserved form yeah. of ancient Celtic and Druidic culture because the Romans never set foot in Ireland. They never managed to conquer Scotland. The Picts up there, who you'll remember from the Loch Ness episode, sure. drove them back. And so these two these two areas where Celtic culture lived was able to kind of live and preserve and, and continue on until about the 500s when the Christians showed up and finally managed to convert everybody. Um, and then Celtic <laughs> culture kind of— to convert. That's right. a nice way to say it. <laughs> Thank you. And then— um, but but Celtic culture had an extra 500 years to continue on and then make it into, you know, the written word and written language. And so you can go back and look at Irish mythology and a lot of people say, this is, this here, here's your example of Druidism right here, um, which it, it could be a, a variation of it because these were isolated cultures, but still it probably is some form of Druidism. And then that is what these 17th century onward and the Neo-Druids base their stuff on. But they don't claim to say, oh, we have unmolested ancient knowledge from the original oral tradition of Druids. They just are kind of basically doing their own thing, you know? Yeah, and it's so rich for um, literature and movies. It's just, uh, it's been definitely just sort of malleable and bastardized just to fit like a screenplay yeah. of um, Celtic folklore and like these kind of creepy, blissed out flower children who... Uh, throw people in a wicker man, or there was a movie with uh, <laughs> Christopher Lambert of you know the Highlander called Druids, oh, which yeah? I'm sure is yeah I haven't seen it, but I imagine it is 100 uh, just cooked up for movies. You know, there's a really good movie from around the time Wicker Man came out called Blood the I think Blood on Satan's Claw, <laughs> dude. It's a terrible title. It is amazing. It's part of like Wicker Man and Blood on Satan's Claw. They're part of something called folk horror. Yeah, yeah. And we would not have folk horror if it wasn't for those antiquarians in the 1700s being— Oh, sure. —or 1600s being, becoming interested in, in Druidism. We, we might not even have Led Zeppelin, my friend, if it wasn't for some <laughs> of those guys. Well, the guy who did uh, Hereditary— his mm-hmm. the trailer for his new movie just came out and it is oh, yeah? 100% straight up like druid uh, centric i can't wait like these these you know teenage campers in like sweden or something i think it's sweden i'm not sure mm-hmm. you know they they find this you know group of people in a field who are doing creepy things and it just it looks really creepy and awesome i'm assuming a24 is producing it probably 
Uh, like, A24 could show a movie of somebody spitting into a pail for <laughs> two hours, and I'd yeah. be like, I, I want to watch that. Yeah, they're a good outfit. They're a great outfit. Uh, oh, one other thing. I also saw that um, Druids, the ancient Druids, uh, if they did exist as like an elite priestly class, would not have gotten their hands dirty with sacrifice. They would have just overseen it. And then possibly a suborder of Druids called Vates would have divined, you know, what was going on from the way the blood was spilled or whatever. So not, uh, what are they, Vates? Vates, and then there was also bards. Uh, so they poets. were not druids, not full-fledged druids. I I don't I don't know I don't understand it. I've just seen it. De- I've seen it delineated like right. Vate, Vates, bards, and druids. Uh-huh. And then I've also seen I think in this article Ed places druids as kind of like the whole elite class. Right, right. It was definitely and, a higher class. Right, and then I also saw in um, uh, some archaeology um, article that. That there's really no evidence that druids, if they did exist as a separate class, existed as a separate class until very late, right before the Romans came. Mm. And they would have just been integrated into everyday life. And it would have been, like you said, an occupation. Like, you know, Todd over there, Todd Merwin, um, (laughs) he's really good with the divining rod. So that's what what we rely on Todd for. But he wasn't like an elite class. And then maybe it developed out of that kind of specialization over time. I love that Todd is your kind of go-to over the years. <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. Love Todd. Yep. Uh, that's it for Druids, although there is a lot more out there, and a lot of it's confusing, but 100% of it is awesome, especially if, you're, um, flo- if your boat is floated by Dungeons & Dragons type stuff. Oh, sure. Uh, and since I said Dungeons & Dragons, it's time for Listener Mail. <laughs> I thought you were about to say... Since I said Dungeons and Dragons, it's Friday night, <laughs> and I'm in a basement. Love it. Hi guys, uh, I worked. This is on bed bugs, by the way. We got a lot of replies about yeah, our we did. short stuff on bed bugs, mm-hmm. um, including quite a few from the uh, people in the hospitality industry. Yes, which is very gross. Yes. Um, hey guys, worked as a guest service agent for a three star hotel in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina for over three years. It was called Bedbug City. (laughs) Uh, Bedbugs was basically a curse word, and it couldn't be used in front of guests. And we heard from a couple of other people in the service industry that you never say that word out loud. (laughs) Uh, They called them BBs at this place, but another guy called them the visitors. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I'm not really sure if it was true or not, but um, a general manager told me that This particular hotel chain did not believe in putting mattress covers on their mattresses. Uh, The logic being is that housekeepers are required to inspect mattresses every time a guest checks out of a room and every time they change the bed. If they were to put mattress covers on the beds and guests would notice them, it would give the guests the idea that bed bugs were in that mattress already. Interesting. Uh, In addition, uh, the manager explained to me that guests are the ones who bring bed bugs into hotels. I don't know about that. It sounds like (laughs) blaming the victim to me. (laughs) Agreed. Uh, So if a guest calls after they've checked out of a room to report bed bugs, this complaint basically fell on deaf ears. If the guest called to report bed bugs during the stay, the company is not obligated to refund the nightly rate, um, but sometimes they might adjust your rate as a sign of goodwill. Uh, They don't reimburse people for finding bed bugs in the rooms because... To them, that is an admission of guilt 
So instead, they will offer... I can't believe this part. Instead, the hotel will offer to wash your clothes, move you to a different room, place the room with bed bugs out of service, and then tell you to throw your stuff in the trunk of your car in plastic bags and leave the car in the sun. (laughs) Uh, Very rare occasions, they might even issue a future night stay that can be used at any bed bug city (laughs) across the country. You get what you pay for with the three-star hotel. Yeah, I don't know, man. Three-star used to be different. It used to be, sure, and then the corporate takeover of America undid that difference. (laughs) So that is from uh, J. The letter J. (laughs) The letter J. This this listener mail is brought to you by the letter J. (laughs) Thanks, J. Come on down to Bedbug City. Thanks, Jay, from Bedbug City. We appreciate that uh, peek behind the curtain. Um, if you work in some industry we've talked about and want to tell us all the gross and horrific things that the general public doesn't know about, we love that stuff. You can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and look for all of our social links there. You can also go to my website, thejoshclarkway.com. You can send us all an email to stuffpodcasts at iheartpodcastnetwork.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 